Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and the universe is vast and indifferent to our desires. Have a nice day. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and Anna, it's nice to meet you again for the first time. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of magical counterfactuals and the Novikov self consistency principle. Today, we'll be continuing Cold Sci Fi Winter. <laughs> with Tom Friedrich's The Gone World, which is available wherever fine books are sold. Also, it came out a few years ago. You can probably get it at the library without too much trouble. And we'll be saying more of this later, but you should get it. <laughs> you should definitely get it. Oh, In the yeah. Next, yeah. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Alien vs. Predator. And I think we are going to wrap up Cold Sci-Fi Winter <laughs> with Groundhog Day. If you haven't become a patron, what? Oh, just Groundhog Day and this and this book in some ways. There's oh. there's there's, there's, <laughs> not, there's more than a passing familiarity. Let's put it that way. I, I think of Groundhog Day as the PG version, perhaps, of the Gone World. But you know, it's can, the PG we'll unless uh, <laughs> gruesome. <laughs> yes, yes. But I do like the idea of an alternative version of Groundhog Day where Andy McDowell is actually Shannon Moss. Yeah. We can consider that later. Yeah, that, that, that would work. We could we could cast yeah. this movie. The movie's fun to cast. The movie's fun to yeah. think about. It's too bad that it seems to be stuck in turnaround, as they say. Mm-hmm. But we're going to talk about this book. We have lots to say. Before we get started, if you haven't already become a patron, please consider becoming a patron. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash space the nation. You get episodes early. Mm-hmm. You will someday, I swear to God, get swag. Stack of Bibles. We'll get mm-hmm. swag. And then what else? Did, yep. What else? What are the other benefits, Dan? You're forgetting about our Discord, <gasps> which is like the best thing ever. Um, <laughs> we have a lovely Discord channel <laughs> with many lovely Discordians who uh, like to, to weigh in on various things, not just sci-fi, but there's like a sports ball channel. There's a day jobs channel. There's a, you know, adorable There's an Elmo channel. channel. Oh, but, I didn't know there was an Elmo channel. Oh, Elmo, right. Elmo, yes, yes. As because Elon, we, yes. as in Elon. There's an Elmo channel yes, yes. since often Elon gets spell checked to Elmo and you get That's it. Yeah, it's, yes. it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a funny joke. It's an inside joke like we have on the Discord. We have plenty of inside jokes on the Discord. And also the Discord now contributes to the podcast, which That's you will right. see a little bit later when we, you know talk about the questions they want to ask us you can always reach us via social media we are no longer active on twitter see nb previous comments (laughs) (laughs) that was a good legal citation on (laughs) (laughs) thank you we're both on mastodon although i haven't been very active on that and dan is on post as well i am you're on post although i'm not very active on that either but i will if you want to call me out i will definitely try you know Nothing quite takes the place of Twitter, and I found myself more active on the Discord, perhaps, than I would be if I still had Twitter. Possibly. I actually find myself not staring at a screen quite as much, which I'm going to confess might be a good thing. It's like that Simpsons episode where like they ban television for a while and everyone actually starts playing in the streets. But Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll see. I still like sitting down a lot. That's... <laughs> I'm a big fan of laying down, sitting down, all those things. <laughs> Fair enough. I am no longer on Twitter. I am on Instagram at the same address, at Anna Marie Cox. If you are curious what I'm up to, I have a website, which is also Anna Marie Cox. In this case, AnnaMarieCox.com. I teach a writing workshop these days, and I'm doing a live version of it. 
in Miami on February 18th. Go to thesandsbar.com. There's a tour link. You'll see it. Uh, I think it's going to be really fun. And I do have a Substack. It's called Dresner's World. And I am repeatedly trying to defy honest predictions of the end of Substack. And, you know, so far it's going okay. So I, I can't really complain. Dan, I've been to the future. There is <laughs> <Yes>. no Substack. <laughs> <laughs> that You know what? Maybe that's the future, Anna. That's all I can say. We'll, we'll get to that as well. Dan, how are you? Uh, I am good. I am good. The semester has started here at Fletcher. I am starting to teach. It is a new course prep, which means it is a heavy lift for me, even though it's a subject I have more than a passing familiarity with. But it is always nice to see these students, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, coming to class. Although, I'm not going to lie, some of my fellow colleagues are a touch freaked out at the moment, because I don't know if you know this, there's this panic inside the academy about chat GPT. So it's almost sci-fi related. Yes, I have not played with chat GBT. GPT. GPT. You should play with it, Anna. Yes, you should play with it, Anna. I would actually legit be fascinated by the interaction there. But let me put it this way. There are many academics, uh, many teachers who are concerned that chat GPT, which does produce grammatically correct prose, and I will tell you as a professor, it's really welcome to read grammatically correct prose, concerns about whether or not students will essentially use it um, as... A paper a writing of, device? Yeah, uh, yes, which is, and this is legit kind of interesting, and we're going to have to see how this goes, because there's questions of whether or not is it cheating, or is it actually like just a, the sort of next iteration of Googling something or looking at Wikipedia for something? I would say, personally, mm -hmm. if they're going to yes. cheat that way, that's on them. And, you know, you're not getting your dollars worth out of my class. Like that is very true, um, and yet does not quite explain the freakout that's going on. So yeah, so that means I guess because I would be, I would yeah. just kind of be like, if you're gonna cheat, like it's your fuck up. Like, right. If you're gonna use this way, in a way, if you're gonna use this in a way that interferes with your educational experience, mm -hmm. fine. The way I would put it, and we should move on after this. Yeah. Is that, uh, <laughs> no, this has become Chat GPT Chat GPT. GPT yes, chat. This is, this is chat. Yes, GPT chat GPT chat. <laughs> you know, we could actually have a section where we ask chat GPT what it thinks about each of these things that we're reviewing. That would be legit kind of funny. We should start. We're going to just start a new podcast. We're just going to, we're yeah. just going to our separate podcast. <laughs> you, me, and chat GPT. That would actually be like, you know, great. Another good name. Um, Another good name for yep, a podcast. There we go. Let's put it this way. Here, here's my advice. The problem is, is that if you want to get a good grade or you want to like actually learn stuff, ChatGPT is of no use to you. Yeah. If, however, you want to barely pass a class, ChatGPT actually could be a, quite the assistance for you. And there are people for whom that is all they want to do. And there are professors for whom that is an affrontery. Yeah, I guess it's the, the part where I am is like, that's not an affront to me. I mean, that's I don't think that's a good idea for you. Right. Child, <laughs> you will regret it later, but okay. Mom okay. and dad have spoken, listeners, so you know that's right. Don't... You know where we stand. Yes, <laughs> we don't think it's good for you to use ChatGPT to try to write papers. Anna, how are you doing? I am good, Dan. I am, I am good. I will not get into detail. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's just what I have realized 
yeah. uh, in my life is that you can be going through really hard stuff and still be okay. Actually, that is an excellent theme for this book. Or that's an excellent oh God, mantra given this book. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that is. Yes. Let's talk about the book. It's such a great book. Yes. It's such a great book. Yes. Why are we doing this book? This was your call. Uh, I am very glad you made it, however. I think about this book all the time. It is mm. a, a rare like genre piece of genre fiction that kind of lives mm. in my head. And not because of its philosophical or time twisty ideas like hmm. i don't think it raises any great moral questions to be honest no i there's a there's a trolley car no. problem at the end i guess but yeah, yeah i don't think that trolley car problem is that interesting <laughs> mm. um it's just incredibly well written and i do think that up until the end like i admire the plot even though it was almost impossible to kind of tie up in a very neat bow it no, and it, and let's be very clear, there were loose threads galore. Right. But at, I at almost am just like, book. well, there's going to be. The design of it was so beautiful. I am okay mm-hmm. with that design kind of p- petering out at the end, mm. you know? I think I didn't quite love it as much as you, but I there. the way I would put it is that there was a mood to this book mm-hmm. that is interesting and unique and not something that I can think off the top of my head that I can associate with much else in terms of science fiction, maybe like the Lovecraft book we read, although even there, it's not the same thing, but but there is a sense of existential dread in this book that is hard to quite, uh, it's hard, you know, and melancholy, I guess would be the way. It is the most noir of all sci-fi noir I have ever read. It reminds me more of Raymond Chandler than it does of anything else. Huh. Like if you cross Raymond Chandler and Lovecraft, yeah, and took out most of the patriarchy and racism, <laughs> most of it, almost all of it, yeah, I think I think you would get this. And I so I'm really this I'm, way. I know you are the biggest noir fan. I, for me, I think the the when we read Altered Carbon, Altered Carbon still for me is yeah. like the apotheosis of like sci-fi noir. But this is deeper, is the way I would put it. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not just noir. This is going for something that is the kind of thing that makes you sit in a dark room and think for a little bit, I guess would be the way to put it. And I would say I think the best noir does that. So okay, fair enough. I think Altered Carbon is a great example of noir in just, like, a genre category. But, like, right. all, all genres, there are pieces pieces of art that that are both in it and transcend it. And right, and come, I would say the gone This comes so close to just transcending completely. It just, yeah. oh, like, I'm, I almost get mad. <laughs> like, <laughs> at like, oh, it's just, it has a very serious fundamental flaw. But it's beautifully written. And mm-hmm. I think that leads us very gracefully to our next question, which is, do you need to read this before you listen to the podcast? Oof. Anna, I think... I. Not necessarily in this case, because we're going to do something a little different for this podcast, which is normally what we do is recap the plot. We're not going to do that for a variety of reasons for this book. For reasons. I kind of wish Anna had warned me about that before I attempted to even try to write the plot recap for this book. But let's put it this way. We strongly encourage you to read it. I don't think it's completely necessary to listen to this podcast. I think you'll still enjoy the book. Even if you hear this, in some ways it's impossible to spoil unless you go into yeah. great detail. 
I let me put this way, this is almost LA confidential worthy in terms of it having oh, a yeah. plot so Byzantine that like you can watch it again and like, oh right, I forgot how that was connected to that. You'd have the same experience reading this book. So that brings us to previous experience. And I as people have gathered, I read this before, and I, as soon as I read it, told mm. you we have to do this. Mm. Mm. That's true. That is correct. And in fact, and it's I'm, one of the reasons yeah. I wanted to do Cold Sci-Fi Winter, although mm-hmm. we'll get to this. Not not super cold. Yeah, actually, this was, I, so I'm not going to lie, as I was reading the first, like, half of this, or, like, actually almost all of the book, I was like, okay, I'm really liking this, but, Anna, like, it's not that cold here, you know, which actually <laughs> is a great segue to our next question. How cold is it? So for Cold Sci-Fi Winter, it's worth defining just how cold the setting is. And there's long stretch of this of this book where it's not really all that cold on it. But like, how would you put it? When it's cold, it's very cold. There we go. <laughs> and a lot yes. of it takes place in space, which is super cold. Although we we haven't used that as a way to cheat on cold sci-fi winter. Correct. If we counted outer space as cold, then then everything is cold sci-fi. Life-size map of the world kind but of problem. There are, there are a fair number of scenes in this book where like someone is physically cold because they're, let's say, exposed and in the elements. Yeah. That would yeah. be another way of putting it. And um, I think it stuck in my mind as a cold sci-fi winner offering because it has very good descriptions of what cold feels like, very vivid, terrifying <laughs> Terrifying is the word that comes to mind, Anna. Like, well, I'll read a passage a little bit later from this book that is just like an actual straight description from someone that is utterly terrifying. It's one of the but most for- well-written books I think we've done for this podcast. Yeah. It, it, yes, and it's although- weird to say something is so well-written and yet not Mrs. Greatness. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it this way. I, I, and I'm, I'm not kidding about this. One of the, the, if there's a, one of the criticisms I think I would have of this book is that it suffers a little bit from what I like to call Aaron Sorkin's disease, mm. which is that there are characters in this book that speak far more fluently than you would expect them to speak, or that that speak in a more almost lyrical way than you would expect them to speak. And that was one of the things that that occasionally gnawed at me where, you know, like there are times where you're reading something where it's just a beautiful piece of writing. But like I also had this it it, it sort of broke my willing suspension of disbelief at times like he's not going to say that or she's not going to say that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's talk about that when we talk about the characters. There. Let's talk about that some more. All right, but let's get to the story behind the story. So, Anna, this was written by uh, Tom Sweaterlich, who I believe is based in Pittsburgh. I'm kind of curious what inspired him to write this, I don't know, like sci-fi meets NCIS book? Is that a safe statement? It is. In fact, NCIS, okay. uh, he mentioned specifically as being an influence. Ah. And also his brother-in-law is an NCIS agent. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so there we go. And then his father-in-law is a physicist. So Ooh. it's basically his conversations with his family members. He talks about this in interviews. Uh, his first conception of the book was NCIS plus Battlestar Galactica plus time travel. Which well, I think okay, is a first of all, I, I do love, I love any writer that can make family reunions be a productive thing. Like I have to admit, like they're, they're I just, I, I tip my cap to Sweaterlich there. His father is specifically a theoretical physicist who is a pioneer in quantum computing and quantum cryptography for the Department of Defense. 
And his name is Dr. Brandt, and he had a partner, Dr. LaMonico, a mathematician specializing in knot theory. And they're both name-dropped in the text, Mm -hmm. which is kind of nice. Uh, Mm -hmm. The NCIS part is, I think, interesting. You'll appreciate he does another kind of hat tip. In a conversation at a Tyson's Corner food court, he Mm -hmm. and his brother-in-law talked about time travel and policing and investigating. Oh, okay. And There's Tyson's being... Corner food food court shows up in the novel in a kind of weird way. Yep. And now, yes, you know, mm-hmm. and what his brother-in-law said was the way that he would use time travel in his line of work is to travel forward in time to question witnesses who were too traumatized, basically, to talk to in the immediate aftermath of the crime. Huh. That's interesting. What okay. a also very generous, what a, what a wonderfully generous way to think about time travel. <laughs> you must be a it's good It's a guy. very grounded way of thinking <laughs> about time travel. I mean, like, that that's like, you know, well, you could travel to the future. What would you do? You know, would you travel centuries ahead to see how far mankind? No, no, I'd just, like, go a little forward to talk to the witnesses. Well, I think he was talking about how you would use it in an investigation process. Oh, okay, fair enough. Specifically. Yes. So okay. how, would you, how would you do it? You'd, like, go forward in time. To not necessarily when the crime was solved, but to solve it. I like it, and that is how the NCIS use time travel in this book. That is the thing that they do. So I want to talk a little bit about the monster in the book, which in this case is more of a thing, not thing. Not a thing. It's an event. I don't think it's a thing. It's the term. I think of it as like, I think it's like Grover's the monster at the end of the book would be the way to put it. Yes, although it is genuinely terrifying. It's not like the monster at the end of, well, hmm. We will talk about it more. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> I, it's an, I think, an ingenious plot device slash villain. There is a villain who's not that interesting, but I, yes, I, which is a problem. But yeah, yeah but I, I appreciated the threat in mm-hmm. in this in this book. It's pretty original. Uh, the yep. last thing I'll say is that it was not surprisingly optioned actually before it was finished. Uh, mm-hmm. By Neil Bloomkamp, who is the director of District Nine and right. Elysium, and yeah, and you know we haven't we haven't we have to do Blomkamp at one point. We haven't done him, and like either of those two would be an appropriate. Interesting note: I found District Nine so disturbing and so good that I don't want to watch it again. No, I think we could do Elysium. I don't want to watch District Nine again either. Yeah, yeah it is very, very good and very, very upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> like just. No, thank you. Yep. He seems like a great director for this. Mm-hmm. And I can't find any information about it beyond 2018. So, Are you saying there's almost like a terminus at 2018 and you can't know what's happening after that? That might be the case. I think it would make a really good movie. Obviously, like the descriptions are terrifying, but you can see how they would transfer to the screen and yet also allow for some creativity. One could imagine ways in which you could visually represent some of the terrifying things in this book. Yeah. Another interesting thing I found out is that Neil Blomkamp was supposed to do an alien sequel and chose to do this instead, or that got stuck in turnaround. So keep your eyes out or not. Maybe we exist in a timeline where it just never happens. and, And slowly the information about that will also disappear. Who knows? Existential dread, Anna. I'm feeling existential (laughs) dread. Let's move on. (laughs) 
do we need to get our dogs so, <laughs> so, so we have like an emotional support animal while we do there this because dogs are the solution to existential dread i think we can agree <laughs> that's true all right what we should do is use uh is talk about chekhov's what's it that is the thing that appears usually in the first act of a book and or movie and or tv series that winds up playing a really important part later in the plot um, in a <laughs> time travel novel it's kind of <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I just surrendered. It's Chekhov's protagonist because literally that is something She's that kind the of happens. She's the gun that goes the off in some ways, book. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there also the, are the, the also guns. I mean, I think Chekhov would be would might like this, but also <laughs> <laughs> Chekhov. What Chekhov would say is like, dude, I only said you had to have one thing. Just just the gun on the mantle. You don't need to have like an entire rack of guns, all of them going off yeah, in the third act. That guns, that's a little ships, people. I, I'm a Russian and I'm telling you that's overkill, dude. Like that that's what I think Chekhov would say. Yeah, I'm just going to we're just going to we're going to blow by that one. Uh, yep. and we're going to get to the plot. Okay. Right. Dan. Yes, Anna. If I had to describe the plot of this novel, I would use the word fractal. Ooh. It's endlessly repeating patterns that make the eye kind of dizzy. And fractals come up a little bit in, in the book. The science in the book, he actually, of course, it's time travel. It's not real. But he did have friends of his father-in-law and his father-in-law kind of look at it. So there's some hand-waving, but the hand-waving is towards real things, I would say. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a lot of let me put it this way. There's a lot of, of of scientific jargon, a lot of which is actually real that is dropped into the book. A lot of it is not real. To be very clear, there's still hand waving because again, we're talking about deep space and deep time, and you know, and things like that. But one of the things that that Swedelich does well is ground the the tech aspects of this to make it, you know. It's not like Star Wars hand wavy. It, it it feels more like the expanse. I would say he grounds it kind of just enough. So yeah, that exactly. It, it feels yes. real, and also his really wonderful kind of thick descriptions make it yeah. feel very real. It has right, but it's not Tom. It's not Tom Clancy like in the sense of like <laughs> there's not pages upon pages of like describing things. You know, like oh, let's take a look at this thruster or something. You know, like that. <laughs> yeah, I would say it has the structure of kind of a puzzle box mystery. <laughs> it also involves time travel, as we've said, which means yeah. there's at least three or four different timelines. Maybe there is more? a there's actually a website that you should link to yes. in the, the notes that, that that sort of tries to under you know tries to sort of rationally put together the precise timelines that we see in this book. And I, I think it's safe to say, Anna, that a podcast, a oral discussion <laughs> of this. <laughs> would drive both of us insane. Silver would pour out of our mouths. And in I'm fact, saying. yeah, this is the novel that broke the way we usually do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, listeners, I actually texted Anna earlier this week saying, what the hell have you done to me? Because as I was reading this, it was really gripping. And I was still thinking... How on God's green earth am I going to recap this plot? Which, by the way, I did. There somewhere is a script that actually has me recapping is the there? plot. Is there? Ooh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there is. Schrodinger's script. Um, but just, like, trying to describe this plot in a linear Reader fashion. Reader Silver is pouring out of his mouth. 
would be next to impossible. It's a little I, I, like I'm trying to think. It would be like trying to just you could do it, but it would be like trying to describe Memento or yeah. um, I mean I'm trying to think of other plots that are just so incredibly convoluted and rebound. It would be like trying to describe all the Back to the Future films in one go. You know, it's, things it like is. That. It, it's a beautiful thing. Like I said, it, it is um, It is a, a beautiful piece of origami that kind of falls apart at the end. Mm-hmm. But we shall not try to describe it in the kind of blow-by-blow blow way that you usually do so yep. well. And I appreciate so much, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate it as well. What we're going to do is I'm going to take a stab. <laughs> Me, Anna. Anna. I'm going <laughs> to take a stab at... A kind of slightly more than book jacket length plot description. And Dan, because he did pay so much attention and did indeed perhaps write a plot summary, <laughs> <laughs> he will let me know what I missed or, or what seems important to him uh, to draw out. So, yes. <clears throat> rubbing my hands together. Okay. Deep breath. I actually started it in the way that Dan usually starts things, so here we go. (laughs) Thank you. I did appreciate that. Meet NCIS detective Shannon Moss, whose beat is deep space sailors who are driven insane by the multiverse and then commit violent crimes. What is deep space? Well, deep space slash deep time are part of the dark ops, black ops, deep water program run by the Navy. And it turns out the Navy has been able to time travel since 1980-something? The Reagan years, mark, Reagan years. I have in the script that that time travel is thanks to alien technology, but I have realized that it just exists. Like, I don't think they ever fully explain it. I think the explanation was was that literally someone from the future comes back with this tech. Right. And so that winds up sort of happening. It doesn't... Well, hmm... It, it is the most hand-wavy part of the book. <laughs> yeah. It kind of yeah. just because exists, it, which I'm okay well, with. Part of, I'm, I'm fine Part of the that. problem, and, and I will say part of the issue with the book, which is interesting, is that basically a, another hand-wavy thing about this is that people travel to the future and then can return to their point of entry. But traveling past sort of, sort of implies that's kind of a no-no, but doesn't say that it's impossible. It's just that you're not supposed to do it. Having read interviews... <laughs> Yes, okay, it good, is good. supposedly impossible, but then the problem is here is that somebody, what it means is that there's a conundrum at the heart of the book, which is that someone must have traveled from present to the future to get the tech to bring it back, but how did they travel? Right, exactly. So, like, you know. We just don't talk about it. They just don't talk about it. We're fine. It's right. kind of funny that it's the 1980s and they're they're having to kind of cludge together time travel stuff. <laughs> Right, I also because although really appreciated the 80s and 90s of, of the plot, personally. Yes. So the, although there's sophisticated tech in the future, basically they can't bring the tech back. They just sort of, in some ways, they, they have the schematics and then have to use, like, I think Star- Reagan's SDI, Star Wars, is responsible for being a lot of the funding that actually creates the deep space slash deep time project. Yes, the deep waters project. There uh, so there, there are two huge problems with mm-hmm. this program. One is that sometimes the ships do not come back. Oops. Right. Well, disappear. that's space travel. Yeah, I mean, you it's going to happen. It's, it's just going to happen. The slightly more pressing issue. Yeah. Is the terminus, which we <laughs> mentioned before. Yep. The exact nature of which is somewhat unclear, but it involves people doing violence to themselves and dying in surreally beautiful ways, I would say. Some of the descriptions of the ways people die 
are both horrifying, disgusting, and kind of entrancing, I would say. Dan, what would you say? Uh, so here is the way I would describe the Terminus, actually. I don't think that's, it, it's close to what you're saying. The well, Terminus also the end of the, the world. End. Sorry, I meant to add, so it's people dying yeah. and then end I don't of the think world it's the somehow. end of life everywhere. It's the end of life on Earth. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And, you know, basically what, what we understand is that, you know, what we discover in the plot is that one of the deep time projects, uh, ships, winds up encountering a world with actual life, which is unusual because in their all their travels they had discovered it. But essentially, when they discover that life, that life starts trying to kill them and they're also trying to chase them. And this leads to the terminus, which means on Earth... Uh, the emergence of a white hole sun <laughs> that ends humanity on Earth. The effect is far worse than that, however. Essentially, the aliens bring things called quantum tunneling nanoparticles with them that basically infest people and cause them to go crazy. But rather than me trying to describe it, I am literally just going to read a passage in which Moss's supervisor, O'Connor, says what is happening on Earth. And he is saying this without any sense of irony or attempted poetry. He's literally describing what's happening. The hanged men are here. People everywhere are looking at the sky. Their mouths are filled with silver. The forests are burning. The snow is heavy. And this is what I mean by like, it's a, that is just a, you know, that is almost like the end of Blade Runner, you know, tears and rain speech. And yet it's a little weird to hear it coming out of the mouth of an NCIS supervisor. But it is like a haunting image, is the way I'd put it. And there's more of those in the book. I would say, in defense mm -hmm. of that particular description, mm -hmm. that uh, O'Connor is a law enforcement officer. And what he's yeah. doing right there is literally describing what's happening. That's true. No, no, no. There's a great section, and actually in the very beginning of the book. Like, you don't need a poet which... to be like, if there are hanged men, the hanged men are here. Yes. People everywhere are looking at the sky. Their mouths are filled with silver. Like, these are just descriptions of what's happening. They are, and yet you know as well as I do. It, it like It's just a powerful okay. set of images interlaced <laughs> upon one another. But let me put this way. I will say that you're right about this, because one of the, the things that Sweaterlich does at the very beginning, which I think is very effective, it's sort of on the NCS, NCIS part of the book, is talking about how Moss literally can look at horrible things, but still do so in a detached way and actually be able to do her job, which... That tracks with anyone who has to do this sort of stuff. So, like, I actually really appreciated that that discussion in the book. And the Terminus is coming. That's the other thing. Right. So the other thing is, is that the Terminus is coming, and it's sort of like a sense of dread. When the Terminus first is understood, it's going to appear in the year 2600. But as the book proceeds along, the Terminus is, you know, in, in, in repeated future time travel, the Terminus is arriving earlier and earlier and earlier to the point where by the end of the book, it arrives in 1997. Okay, there's more. <laughs> yep. So, anyhow, Moss has sailed deep time and seen the Terminus, drove her a little crazy, maybe more Lost on that later. Lost a leg. Now yep. she's batting cleanup in a case where a Navy vet <laughs> from the Deepwaters program named Patrick Marsolt appears to have butchered his family. His mission supposedly never returned. And yet, what do you know? His wife and son are dead. His daughter is kidnapped. That he is not actually MIA deeply concerns the Navy. It mm -hmm. concerns them a little more than the death of his family, which is an interest. It, I think that that is a important part 
and it it gives us more about Shannon, right? Shannon yeah. is very concerned with the crime. And right. it is and clear her supervisors. For... Right. Her supervisors right. are like, how did this guy undisappear? Which is important. And she, she solves I, it, It's a super mysteries. important question, Anna, yeah, like, to yeah. be fair. Like, the Navy is not wrong to be concerned about that. Right. Yeah. But that is why they use this incredibly expensive, incredibly precious technology to send her 20 years in the future to figure out how this went down. She goes to the future, literally embeds there. Lots is revealed. Not going to go further. <laughs> no, but one of the one of the things I in some ways that was consistent with what you said before, which is basically the reason they send her forward is because of the idea that within the twenty years or nineteen years in the interim, presumably it's not that she's doing necessarily any work. It's that the NCIS team, the FBI team, will collect new information, inform her of what's going on. Then she could potentially do more investigating in that timeline. And once she's acquired all of that information, travel back to her original point of origin, what we call terra firma, and then be able to sort of, you know, aid and abet the investigation in real time. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. And now I'm kind of bowing out. <laughs> because <laughs> you would need graph paper and origami <laughs> and string and pens and pencils to kind of do this justice. It turns out there's a connection between the missing slash not missing sailors and the Terminus. An yep. interesting connection, one that I did not see coming the first time I read the book. Mm -hmm. And the description of the planet is amazing, I think. Yep. Very well done. And Sweaterlich has a somewhat unique take on traditional time travel conundrums. And it's, I think it's, the, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I think the way to put it is that Sweaterlich re rejects the concept of the multiverse. Yeah. Yes. There can be no multiverse in Sweaterlich's world. In the Gone world, there is terra firma, and then there are other temporary futures, but those temporary futures inevitably collapse upon themselves. Actually, the other way to think about it is in the peripheral. Uh, mm -hmm. They talk about stubs as like possible future timelines that that probably won't amount to much and i think in some ways that's a, a sort of similar way of how it's, it's treated which is there is one powerful timeline you can create a branch off it but that branch will inevitably be clipped maybe we should talk about the peripheral because my understanding <laughs> is actually yeah, that yeah. those things are called stubs but they actually do continue on however long they do potentially continue on that's you're right that's that's fair but i think the way to put it is that the in the peripheral, the actors in the main timeline or the, the the characters in the main timeline, one of the issues is is that they basically think of the stubs as playgrounds where they can do anything they right. want. Right. And then what he does is is say as soon as a stub is exited yeah. by the time by the, traveler, then right. it ceases to exist. And this it is an important distinction because it drives the yep. plot and it's my huge problem <laughs> with the book. Yeah, it's an issue. I mean it, it, it's it's a unique take on it. I will mm -hmm. say that. Like, I, and and, and I, one of the things I like is that Swetterlich basically demonstrates the difficulty, if that is true, of actually getting anything done in an organization in future time travel. Because basically, what you're doing is telling these people, okay, when this person comes, you got to help them. And by the way, then when that once that happens, all of our existence is winked out, and we're going to go. It, it restarts in 1997 or 1985 or what have you. And the part that I have trouble with, and we will probably talk about this at length, is the yeah. idea that it causes so much 
dread among the people yeah. who know this. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about it later. But it is it is important that he posits this inability for some people to be okay with the idea of their existence winking out. Right. Which, in theory, yeah, okay, you would be that would be bad. But my thing is like, well, it winks out. Like you don't know. Right. Our it's existence sort of could wink out right now, Dan, and then i just i just snapped like thanos right <laughs> and in, there's no way like again it's a problem for me it it has to be jumped over to in order to continue enjoying the book because mm-hmm. the entire book hinges upon people's desperate desire to not have their timeline wink out oh yeah it's driving a fair amount of the plot yes yes yeah oh and they call yeah. these futures dan ifts Yes, I think it's funny. I kept wanting to say IFT reading it, but I think they Swedelich says ifs. they pronounce ifs. Ifs, ifs. that's which right. Actually, ha, I have to admit, ha, that's ha, a nice, ha, that's ha, a good ha, joke. Ha, ha. Yes, impossible futures. Is that it? Inadmissible future Inad- trajectory. Inadmissible future trajectories. Yes. Okay. Did I? What did I miss? What should we? What should we let people know before we continue? I, the only thing I would say is that is, is part of what drives Shannon is that when she was a teenager, her best friend, a girl named Courtney Gim, I think, is murdered brutally oh, yes. um, out, outside of a pizza hut. And in some ways, that that's one of the defining sort of hinge moments for Shannon Moss, that, that in, in some ways she was growing up and was potentially going to be a sort of layabout, but, but winds up being driven to... Yeah, she's galvanized. Well, I mean, originally she sort of broken down by it, but eventually it galvanizes her to wind up joining uh, NCIS. Yes. And there's an issue with her honoring her friend by using her name, and that Leads to some complications, Anna. Some complications. Yeah. And, and it creates, let's put it this way, there's a lot of remarkable coincidences that happen <laughs> in this book, Anna, that turn out not entirely to be coincidences. Um <laughs> You know, and so that there's that going on. The other thing that I would say that's going on, this isn't a huge thing, but there's sort of a weird question about what's going on in the upper realms of what I think is called NSC, the Naval Space Command. The person running it, I'm not entirely sure has benign motives, but it's not it this is one of those threads that doesn't quite work out, but I like I, I kind of accepted it as as even as I was reading it, I was like I sense this is supposed to be a fake out that really doesn't amount to much in the end. But it like, it did except it does. Yeah. What I would say is that Sweaterlich has a really interesting background, which I want to talk about in a second, but it's clearly not in politics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that is a safe <laughs> Although this really isn't about politics per no, se. No, it's it not. But bureaucracy. Like, his idea about it, how like the upper tiers of power work in Washington yeah. is very like that's the biggest hand wave in the book. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, yes. So, um, so Dan, we have a we have a section that we may use again. Who knows? Who mm-hmm. knows what parts of this structure we will use again? This could be an inadmissible future podcast, Anna. <laughs> that is correct. An if 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 is it if 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 if, if yes. If. Uh, so I have entitled this section, <clears throat> How is this science fiction different from all other science fictions? <laughs> Anna, when our people were slaves in Egypt. No, because uh, <laughs> it, it does sound like one of the four questions. Um, yeah. Okay, I have but a couple I also, of things. It also, that, also is my question. Yeah. I think it's a good one. Maybe we should use it for other yeah. other, other uh, texts. 
How is this different for you? So there were a couple things. The first, which here again, I will credit Sweaterlich, is what I would describe as almost the Goldilocks amount of disorientation in the start of this book. This book starts with a very confusing prologue in which Moss is at the terminus and sees herself, but then sees believes that the wrong Moss is rescued or something like that. And it's disorienting when you read it, as well as into the next section, it's disorienting because on the one hand, it reads like a standard NCIS plot. And on the other hand, oh, by the way, there's like, it's almost casual mentions of deep space and deep time. I actually thought that was an incredibly effective device because the whole point of the book is to obviously disorient you. I mean, anyone who would presumably be dealing with the idea of time travel is going to be disoriented. And so I, it wasn't too disorienting. It's not like the beginning of Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man or anything. But there's parts of it where you're like, I'm not entirely sure what's going on here. And then, But it, it sort of slowly hooks you in. Okay, so we're, we're going to alternate on this. Anna, what yeah. do you got? Uh, lensing, which is the idea that in these ifs, the same ideas and people and dialogue pop up in in multiple futures and in sometimes mm-hmm. in entirely different circumstances it's not mm-hmm. necessarily even meaningful that they're the right. same it's and it's because of the subjective view of the person doing the time travel it's like i'm going to kind of personify and butcher butcher this but it's as though the universe picks ideas out of the time traveler's head and mm-hmm. those details in the future only become real because this particular person is observing them. And this happens with clues, which are and are not important. But it also happens that my favorite moment of it happening, and I think a good illustration of it, is when she rents an apartment in the future and the kitchen cabinets are the same kitchen cabinets that she had in her grandmother's house. Hmm. And it, it, it is just like this echo that she's like, oh, yeah, I guess the future pulled that from me. I I liked that idea. And I think it, in some ways, the thing I liked about it is is when I think about my own creative writing, especially fiction, sometimes I see things repeat that I'm not aware of. Right. I see ideas repeat that I'm not aware of. And it's because like some part of my subconscious probably is like pulling ideas out that probably are important that I haven't realized are important. So it's it's a cool idea. That is a cool idea. Something that I thought was was rather distinctive is, and this is going to make it sound like it's a sadistic novel, but it's not, but the utter pummeling that our protagonist takes. Shannon Moss gets the living shit kicked out of her at various points throughout this book. I mean, the book literally starts with her losing a leg. Um, and, you know, that's it, it, one of the interesting things is that Sweaterlich sort of treats that more as a sort of matter of fact thing rather than it's hardly something that defines her. It's just sort of something that's there. And I actually really like the way that that was dealt with. But beyond that, I mean, she gets beaten up three or four times. And what's interesting to me about that is the way I would put it is that she is beaten, but but not traumatized. Does that make any sense? I think she's partially traumatized. What I think is that he does a really good job of dealing with trauma and dealing with disability and dealing with it in a way that's very, it feels lived because Mm -hmm. trauma is something that people just live with. Right. Yeah. yeah, It it can be something that is both incredibly destabilizing and affects your entire being, but also that you have to get through your days. And I guess the way I would put it is, is that, you know, 
the character wavers at times. Like the character at times is just sort of soldiers on, mm-hmm. but there are other moments where like it seems like she's going to break down completely. Yeah. I guess. And, yeah. And, and actually, the ways in which she breaks down, I don't think have as much to do with the physical assaults as sort of various epiphanies that occur to her as the the book goes along. In some ways, the the greatest danger to Shannon Moss in this book are not actually like someone pointing a gun at her or someone beating the crap out of her. It is the knowledge that she acquires along the way. Yeah. I actually know exactly what you mean. And it is weird as a feminist who is sensitive to violence against women, especially to find that not, not only not objectionable, but I understand what that violence is doing in the plot. And it also never feels sadistic. You're right. It never feels like it's being done for the amusement or the edification or like it, it's very much has to do with the plot and it is yeah. real for her. It's not comic yeah. book violence either. No, it she's, is not. and there's scarring. Yeah. She is honestly like one of the best female characters written by a man that I've ever come across. I mm-hmm. no small compliment. I mean, she's up there for sure up there with Ripley, I would say. No. And I will echo. <laughs> can't use the word echo without thinking about the book. Um, <laughs> the way he treats her disability. Uh, Sweaterlich used to work for years before he sold his first novel for a uh, film option at the Carnegie Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. And mm-hmm. I think that's why he's so knowledgeable about how her prosthetic works and how she deals with it. And it's just very, it's just part of who she is. It's just, haha. <laughs> it is a disability in that it can be taken advantage of by other people, and that happens in the book. But it mm-hmm. also is, is her body, and yeah. and that is how most people experience disability. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that's those things are unique to the book. Uh, yeah. One last thing I would say, which is, how would I put it? This book is interesting because it's a book that, in the end leads to a climax such that no one will remember the events of the book. Yeah. If I understood this correctly. Yeah. Um, the way I would put it, for those of you who haven't read it, but like, my, think about it as like the Yesterday's Enterprise episode from Star Trek Next Generation, where there's a lot of really sort of serious events, but in the end, it takes the time travel seriously. And so as a result, no one has any memory um, except possibly Guinan of like what actually happened. And even there, like that's the cheat there. Whereas in this book, he plays it straight no one has any memory of what has happened uh at the end of the book yeah it's it it is a not entirely satisfying but fairly unique way of dealing with time travel and i want to move us to talk more about other characters as as well in the book i think we can we can wrap up with what we have to say about shannon uh maybe a little bit a little bit more dan the only thing I would say, I mean, like, there's two there's two sort of catchphrases that Shannon keeps repeating to herself as sort of her guidance. Um, the first is protect the innocent, and the second is someone else would quit, meaning she's not going to. And I, I, you know, as character notes go, those are pretty good ones. And I particularly liked her, her sort of, there's a brief moment towards the end of the book where Shannon begins to think, that she is actually the cause of everything that has happened, which Mm -hmm. I don't think is true if I understood the plot correctly. But she does briefly consider that possibility because she does make mistakes in this book also. Like one of the things that that Swedelich is really good at is having her do things at times that are understandable, but you recognize, oh, no, 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 that's not the way to play this. And even she realizes that it's not the the way to play this. So when she has this sort of moment of existential 
angst at the end about the possibility that she's actually responsible for the terminus, which is not the case if I understood it correctly. You know, that moment is almost heartbreaking in terms of like yeah. suddenly like these these statements of protecting the innocent and someone else who quit almost break her like in terms of like the self-flagellation that she undergoes. But yeah, she was she was a fantastic character, you know, equal parts determination, no nonsense, but also, you know, a real lived in character. Yeah, I could talk more about her, but I think it's important to talk about the other characters as well. There's a, a few really yeah. good ones. Dan, who are your favorites? So I think the most second, the second most appealing character for me was actually Nicole or Cole, which points to some of the more frustrating things about this for me because I thought she was a really you know interesting character. She's a character who um, is tied to Patrick Mersault, and you discover that she was on the Libra, which is this sort of ship that winds up being this sort of. Ooh, it's the ship that disappeared use. that somehow also the sailors survived. She's this this the Libra is the sinosure of the plot. Yes. Uh, and there's a long section where we get to know Nicole a fair amount. And that part was lovely. And the sort of friendship between her and, and Moss, which is in part constructed because Moss is, is seeing her as an informant to try to or like, you know, as, a, as someone to try to glean information from. But it's a real relationship. And then she disappears for like almost all of the second half of the book. And I'm still not entirely sure what her story was. If I understood it correctly, and Anna, I want you to correct me if I got this wrong, she isn't um, from the time that she winds up living in. She's from like 600 or 400 years in the future or something, and I'm still not entirely sure that that makes sense. And also, if that makes sense, then in some ways the the other characterization we read doesn't quite match. I, I wanted to know a lot more about Nicole, I guess would be the way to put it. I feel like the first time I read it, I understood it better. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, she is from the future. Yeah. She was a 18-year-old medical student in right, the future. Right, in Kenya, right? In yeah. Kenya, in a future where the terminus is not known, I believe. I think that's correct. Or the terminus is nowhere close. Are there maybe, because they maybe haven't Because they was... haven't been to Esperanza. Esper Esperian. Esperian. No, it's no, no, no. That's not how you. No, sorry, Dan. That's not it. It's not Esperian. It's Esperance. Um, Esper Esperance. Is, that's right. Yes. I kept <laughs> wanting to say Esperian. Esperian yes. is a, I believe, a. Um, it's expense. a credit check company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did keep seeing that. So, like, yeah. No, it's Esperance. Yes. <laughs> she's from. The, she's from the credit check. There is a critique of capitalism <laughs> in this book. There we go. That's not it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, She's from the future. I feel like there is a reason why she gets on the Libra, but now I am not sure what it it's is. It's a little hand wavy is the way I would put it. Is that it's not it it's not delved into all that much. I guess what I'm saying is I really liked that character, but I wanted mm -hmm. to know more about her. And like she was frustratingly enigmatic to me. What about you though, Anna? What what character also stood out for you? I liked the Dr. Najoko. Who yes, Nyoko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nyoko. He is not. He's a tertiary character, kind of. Right. But he's really mm -hmm. well done in yeah. a few strokes, and he's a good guy, which yeah. there aren't a ton of. <laughs> he's an un, the way I would put it. He's an unambiguously good guy, yeah. which there are not a lot of. There are not a lot of those in this book. Would that be yeah. a safe way of putting it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And he, I won't. I mean, it's 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 not. He's a physicist, I believe, and also in NCIS. And I, I, 
I enjoyed it when he showed up. I was sad when he disappeared. Yeah. The, there's other characters that are very well drawn, but very few of them are likable. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, so if, again, this is a critique, I guess, I have of the book, which is that to the extent that there are villains in this book, it's mostly the crew from the Libra. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, not just Patrick Mersault, there's, uh, I think, Cobb, there's... Mm-hmm. Eccles, I can't, I can't think that's his name. And and the sort of lead one is a guy named, and I apologize if I'm going to mangle this, Hild Kruger. I think. I think that is correct. My my uh, Nordic um, background uh, genes, my Nordic genes. <laughs> Tell you that's good. That is correct. Honestly, most of them were interchangeable to me. Yeah. And it was, I mean, like I expected Hild Kruger to have like who was sort of the the chief bad, I guess, guy, like to have a little more substance, and there really wasn't much of one. And she works with some dudes who are (laughs) – they all have flaws like people, but some of the flaws were very disappointing. I guess the the best of the the men she works with is a father figure-ish guy, Brock, who I believe is FBI? Yeah. I didn't think of him as father figures. I thought of O'Connor as the father figure. Oh, O'Connor. Yeah, I would say they kind of both are maybe. Or he, she does, she, he is a a father. You know what it is, is so she loses her father early on, or he's, he's gone from the picture uh, in her childhood. And I would say that you're right. He's not so much a father figure, but because she grows up without a father, her father was in the Navy he disappeared at some point. I thought that would come back. I'm kind of happy that it didn't. But she seems to be very attracted to the fact that Brock is like a good, dedicated mm-hmm. father. Like, that seems to... Yeah. Yes, and also disturbed when it turns out that Brock does some, in some of the ifs in the future, Brock does some... Questionable let's just things. Say questionable things. Totally. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I... I... <laughs> there are a couple other smaller characters that I actually thought were effectively drawn. Um, Moss's mother actually was... Like, again, just a few mm. brushstrokes, but, like, you know, you almost got a sense of... Hit a little the... too hard for me, quite honestly, Dan. <laughs> yes, and that's a credit to, <laughs> to Swedelich, I would say, is that, you know, it, it, and I, I totally understand that. One last character, which I guess this is more of a puzzle for me, which is Remark, who is the captain of the Libra and is clearly sort of talked about a whole lot more than we actually see at the very end which was an odd choice. And like, I expect that if this is turned into a movie, that character is going to wind up having a much larger role. I wonder if there's a lot of her in a word document on his computer. Yeah, possible. That, that got a little, you know, command X because uh, the novel was getting a little long. I, I'm sure that she, oh God, I can almost see who would play her except she's kind of young, right? Like that's the thing is that she's described as being a very young is she a captain commander can't she's remember. a captain she, i think she's yeah. captain of the ship yeah. it, this for some reason this book feels really fun to cast like more than most i don't know why but <laughs> who would you ca- so who would you cast as the lead you know who or just who, who, occurred to me as as not actually right and i'm i'm, I'm pulling from homeland i thought of claire no danes. claire danes i think would actually be really interesting in this role i agree you mean it's as, as remark or as homeland or as moss I saw her as Moss. Yeah. Cause but I, I think I'm pulling her from Homeland. No, no, but no, still, it's yeah. a different character. I think that, no, I actually think Claire Danes would work. Let me put it this way. Having just watched um, Fleischman is in Trouble, where, you know, she's, she stars in that. One of the things about that show is that, that it takes place at various times over 20 years. 
and Claire Danes is is the kind of actress that is believable enough still to be someone in her twenties, but also in her forties. So like, and that actually in some ways kind of describes Moss in a lot of ways. So like, yeah. I actually think that works. Yeah. yeah, we will leave the other characters perhaps to the Discord. Yes, because we have to move on. Dan, I have a question. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this book? <laughs> Anna, the IR in this book <laughs> occupies the thin space. <laughs> Namely, endgame strategies. So one of the things that's going on in this book a lot is that the world is ending. Mm. It is the terminus. That is going on um, a lot. Yes. Yeah. And one of the things about knowing that we're in the endgame is that strategies that previously would have worked as a way of fostering cooperation start to break down. So, you know, in, in terms of sort of classical game theory, there are strategies whereby in, in mixed motive games you can get people to cooperate um, in The Prisoner's Dilemma with the idea of, of future punishment if someone defects. If there is no future, then what winds up happening is cooperation starts to break down. And we see this again and again. It recurs almost in the book. First among the crew of the Libra, when Remark, realizing what has happened that is causing the Terminus, wants to essentially scuttle the ship. Um, and some of her crew don't go along with that. Second, we see it in the ifs, the sort of inadmissible future trajectories uh, in which, you know, the knowledge that once the time traveler goes back, the world is going to end, causes at times various people to try to either take the time traveler hostage or kill the time traveler, what have you, to essentially prevent the end of existence as far as they're concerned. And then finally, when the Terminus actually hits in 1997, all hell breaks loose, on Earth, all hell breaks loose, even within uh, the NSC. Not surprisingly, because it does seem like the end is at hand. <laughs> in these circumstances, in those kinds of circumstances, what can you do to maintain cooperation? You can basically try to do it in one of three ways, if you think the world is actually ending. The first is just to be absolutely terroristic. You know, to basically say, yeah, the world's going to end, but in the, like, five minutes left, I could torture the crap out of you or what have you. And this is essentially what Hild Kruger does with the Libra crew. Um, it's a way in which he does manage to maintain some sort of integrity among the mutineers. The second way you can do it, and this is true in bureaucracies, is group cohesion, group discipline. You see that in the NCIS, you see it in the FBI, but that wavers, unsurprisingly, because, again... These... And, and folds under terrorism, yes. I would point and out. And there's some, some deep existential <laughs> dread. The final way you can do it, and what Moss eventually figures out, is if you can offer an actual shadow of the future, one that, that wasn't realized. And in the end, that winds up being the hinge moment in the book where Moss is able to actually convince someone who otherwise would not have cooperated with her to cooperate as a way of ending the entire uh, plot of the book. Yes, Dan. <laughs> you know, I thought you might talk a little bit about international cooperation in the uh, face of the end of the world. Except there was none from what I could tell. Like there, there's... Yeah, right? See, I thought you might talk about that, it, but there isn't any. It's well, actually it, a little I, weird. I would say it's a little even more disturbing that. It's not that there's just no international cooperation. There is no world, Anna. Like basically, this is a plot that takes place entirely within the United States. That's entirely fair and understandable. But once the Terminus arrives, there is no discussion whatsoever of what any other country is doing. There's a couple of like news references to like snow in Africa or what have you, but there's no discussion of like how societies are reacting, how other governments are reacting. Absolutely none of that. So like, you're right. I didn't talk about it because it's not in the book. It's sort of the dog that doesn't bark. And here I will point out that although Switterlich has 
really good, interesting, and well-drawn female characters. And two, yeah. we both were liked the two African-American characters, the two black characters that he has. It is weird <laughs> whiteness <laughs> that that there's no mention of any other kind of culture. Like, we do get some black people, which is great. And actually, like, I just appreciate that. And in and, and a book that cares, you know, that shows the world as it is, except that that world ends at the borders of the United States. I, I, the only thing I will strange. say is that, like, in the, the last section of this book, things are, like, there is a propelling sense of momentum to the plot. And I I don't mm-hmm. begrudge him the fact that, like, nothing is talked about in terms of the rest of the world. It would have... It, it, it would have required oh, an entire I, different draft to actually add that into the other stuff. So, yeah. It is a thing I will say that is critical of the book. I'm not sure right, how I would yeah. have done it. Like, it would be a different book. And it's a great book. And it has flaws. And we will have to leave it at that. I hope he writes more books. He hasn't written Well, actually, since, this does so. give rise to a question that I have for you, Anna. Oh, what, is what is Is there it, a critique Dan? of capitalism in this book? Dan? <laughs> yes, Anna? I have seen all of time written out in a black circle, <laughs> and capitalism is a pestilent light ringed with black stars. It is a parasite that lives in our blood. <laughs> you, you, I know you were looking forward to saying that. <laughs> I was. I was. So there's two big things here. One is the terminus arrives on the back of a commercial flight, <laughs> and I think that's not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> or it went out with a, t- a, a flight that a was flight intended that, to like profit from the existence of es- Esperance. Yes, yeah. yes, it, it is intended to go to Esperance and and yeah. strip resources from it, and instead they get murderized or yeah. they murderize each other. I, I will also point out, Dan, the terminus is capitalism. <laughs> it is a parasite that lives in our blood and turns us inside out, inviting us to destroy each other and ourselves. I was going to ask you, on if one of the reasons you love this book so much is, I, towards the end in particular, that, that sequence, I did start thinking of Event Horizon. Yes, there, there, there's some event, like horizon. event Horizon. Including yeah. the people, turning, the people yes, going exactly. nuts on each other and uh, yeah. turning inside out. And I am, you know, both of us are really disturbed by body horror. I... I it's a testament to the book that there is body horror in it and it's beautifully yeah, it's, done. Again, like, I think you and I had the same experience <laughs> with this, which is there is body horror. And yet all I'm doing is I'm reading about it. It's like, wow, this is beautifully written body horror, you know? So again, yeah. looking forward to seeing yeah. what Sweaterlich does in the future. Discordant notes. Yes. Discordant notes. Yeah. These are questions from the Discord. Dan is the person that digs them we up. Only what have do we only one got, question Dan? this time, which, you know, this was a book and people actually had to have read it, I think, to ask the question. But uh, Carrie asks, could the deep time technology, as it exists in the book, be put to good use? Or is it inevitably just going to turn into a mess where fixing future problems creates new ones? And is there anyone you would trust to be in charge of it? I think, Dan, we both have the same answers yes, to this yes, question. Yes, yes, I think we do. We, exact same answers. We did not... <laughs> we did not consult uh, in uh, advance. We did not consult, but they're the exact same answers. One is that, yes, it would be pretty much a, a mess. And then the, to your answer to your other question, Dan... Dolly Parton. The only person we would trust with this technology would be Dolly Parton. And I think that's a pretty obvious she's answer. Al- she's, she's always the right answer to a question like that. <laughs> of who do you trust to, to deal with something? Dolly Parton's a good answer there. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. 
And Dan, we have now come to the temperature scale that is more metaphorical. <laughs> it is the scale we are using uh, to judge all of the cold sci-fi winter mm-hmm. things we're looking at. It is the sci-fi winter energy scale. So on a scale of 0 to 100 Celsius, was this movie a bracing <laughs> walk in bitter world-ending cold? Mm-hmm. Or was it liquid silver flowing from your mouth? <laughs> I am giving this a 90, Anna, uh, which I believe is the highest score I have given so far uh, to a cold sci-fi winter experience. It's been a while, let me put it this way, since I read a book where I wanted to finish it as quickly as as reading The Gone World. Um, there was one night where I was like reading it and like I realized there was no way I was going to be able to finish it that night. And I could like I went to bed just being like, okay, should I get up early to finish it? Like, how do I going to finish it? I was a little worried whether I was going to finish this book in time for this. It is a very good and actually quick read. And it, in in some ways, I'm looking forward to rereading it at some point because I was reading a little bit for speed and I, I fear I missed some of the really lyrical passages, but it, it, it's a, it was an excellent book. Well, Dan, I might give it a 95. Oh it The good parts are so good. Right. It, they really go a long way towards erasing my memory. <laughs> it's almost like the bad parts didn't happen. That's what I'm trying to say. I I kind of can't believe it didn't make a bigger splash hmm. that I hadn't heard of it before. I I found it because I was looking for sci-fi noir books. And that's how it popped up. Okay. Came out in uh, I think 2018. I think maybe a little bit, maybe 2015. But I'd never heard of it before, and this is the kind of thing that I would definitely have have sniffed out i Mm -hmm. think i think it deserves to be up there i think we should campaign make a word of mouth uh campaign to get this into into more people's hands hey we should actually record i am looking forward to rereading it oh yeah we should podcast about it i am also weirdly looking forward to Mm rereading it (laughs) and in in a way that makes the convoluted plot uh a feature, not a bug. Yeah, yeah. It'll be nice to reread it, knowing what happens in the end, to sort of figure out like as things go along. I agree with you. Yeah. So, so it is. It is my favorite of the things we've done, and I really liked the thing. Yeah. But I would say that the problems of the thing don't outweigh the good parts. <laughs> whereas in the this problems case, of the thing are pretty significant. Whereas in this yeah, case, pretty uh, significant. A little bit different. Yeah. Oh wait, what's that? I'm feeling the QFT. Oh my god, the beat the PL drive. Oh is yeah, firing. it's firing on us. <laughs> ah! It's the debris field. Dan, what do you have? So I will start with just a simple one, which I confess I almost texted you but did not, which is I did laugh when I discovered that the chief villain, Hilde Kruger, was a University of Chicago graduate. <laughs> Dan, would you want me to text you a screenshot of my first thing that I was well, going to say? Do. What were you going to say? <laughs> Hildegger, I'm oh, sorry. Hill Kruger is a USC grad. <laughs> Dan, thoughts? <laughs> Let's just say, as someone who's taught at the UFC and as Ada, you have attended the UFC, not, this was not an entirely surprising data point. Perhaps would be the way I would put it. It tracks. It yep. tracks. Yep. <laughs> I did like that. Like, uh, it tracks obsessive, brilliant, cruel. <laughs> Methodical, maniacal. <laughs> totally killer. makes yep. sense to yep. me. I, we didn't mention in, in, in everything we said that there is this very strong, like, Nordic mythology part of the plot, mm-hmm. which I remember the first time I read it being a little disappointed that it didn't have a bigger actual point that it just winds up being a lot of imagery. Mm-hmm. But it is cool imagery. Yeah. 
and the the things that she pulls from their nightmares. Oh, I also wanted to point out this is gonna be a, maybe my original debris piece of debris that there is a couple things he does that pull from places that aren't America. One of them is the idea, or explains at least a little bit of why he does the things the way he does. And one of them is that the terminus or the Q N T QTNs or what QTNs pull from our consciousness the tortures that they do. Yeah. So that is why there's this Nordic imagery throughout the book is because Hilda Kruger was one of the closest people literally to the terminus, the terminus. And so it pulls this Nordic imagery and there is a throwaway line that I did appreciate where one of the characters say, you should see what it does to Buddhists. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Again. So I appreciated that. Let's see. Oh, this is just a small, like two small things, but I actually like, there's not a lot of humor in this book, but I did laugh at these two things, which is first, uh, one of the, the operation that, it, like, when the Terminus arrives, one of the, the contingency plans they have is the U.S. government has is to send top personnel into ships as, to escape from the Earth to, like, try to find a place to live. And that is called Operation Saigon, which I did think was actually legitimately funny. <laughs> um, it, it was a nice Vietnam reference. The other thing, honestly, I which I did think was hysterical was that in the very beginning of the book, Shannon Moss makes this jo- this thing about how you have to explain what NCIS means, which for anyone who is like, you know, like NCIS for like, what, a decade was the most watched television show on, on the air, but not in 1997. So it was entirely plausible that in 1997 you had to explain what NCIS meant. So I, I, again, those were not a lot of humor in this book. Those two things were funny. So Dan, when we were texting back and forth about the book and how much we liked it, we both said we had passages we wanted to mm-hmm. share might as well put them here. Not all of them are really important to the plot. Some of them just stick with me. This is a passage that I underlined back before we were going to do it for the show, which I hardly ever do. Like, it is so rare for something to strike me so thoroughly in a book that I'm reading for fun that I mark it. But I did with this one. She drove the dead hour interstates, Cannonsburg to 79 South, West Virginia, allowing the images to swirl in her mind, glom together. The challenger in the immensity of the sky, a ship for the dead built of fingernails, the forest in winter. The interstate was a river of asphalt illuminated by street lamp light. She was aware of the mountains that grew around her, that she couldn't see them. There were gargantuan darkness, snuffing out the stars. I think that captures so well. There's a thing that she does in the book that also really hit me as a true, which is that she she allows her mind to kind of wander with clues. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I've ever seen that portrayed as well as it's done here. Like that that thing that happens, and I, I'm pretty sure you and I have talked about this in terms of writing, where you just are kind of almost observing your own ideas. One of the things... and Yeah, I, one of the other things she does in this book, which I found interesting, and like I, there... There have been people who have compared this to Silence of the Lambs, or at least compared her to Clarice Starling. And it's something that she does that's interesting, which is when she's not exactly interrogating, but interviewing other people, like she actually interrupts and almost finishes their sentences or finishes their thoughts or leads them to like continue to talk. And that was was interesting to me. And I, I did like that. 
so yeah, I, I totally understand. So there's another passage that is from the character we like, Joku, Nijoku, Nijoku. Mm-hmm. And I will, it's a little long, but I'll, I'll, I'll read some of it. We sailed 5,000 years, and I saw wonders, Shannon, wonders I will never comprehend. The oceans were thick like honey, 55 billion people or more, deserts, everything sandswept. The old cities had fallen away, but new cities were built, entire cities in the shape of black pyramids, pyramids carried on the shoulders of the millions who lived in their shade. Entire generations were born, lived, and died beneath the cities they carried, moving cities, wandering to find water. The people below were starving, naked, subsisting on scraps and detritus left by the kings who lived inside the pyramids. I can tell you the rich were doing well for themselves. Inside the pyramids were pleasure gardens, grottos, and fountains. And some people had left their bodies entirely, had become immortal, living as waves of light. But once they could no longer die, the immortals begged for death, because life without the passage of time became meaningless. It used to be thought that hell was a lack of God, but hell is a lack of death. That may be an example of someone speaking too lyrically, but God damn. (laughs) I am okay with it because I love that lyricism. Actually, the passage I would want to read would actually be like the next page or two after that. Because again, it, it speaks to how well Njoku was as a character. But it also, I think, sort of underlines what we were talking about, which is, one of the key drivers for the plot is this notion that if someone is in an ift and it ends, they don't exist anymore. And like I, it was Njoku's way of saying it that was that was you know quite uh, interesting to me. Even though I know the physics, on some level I refuse to believe that if I ever encountered you, Shannon Moss, it would prove that this entire universe was just some sort of pocket universe that would blink out once you left. When O'Connor assigned you to me, it was like he handed down my death sentence. Can you understand that? I'm married. I have children, and my children have grown and are ready to have children of their own. But every happy moment in my life was tempered by knowing that what I was experiencing wasn't real. And I, I think that is the most effective, like, and Joku, by the way, again, fundamentally good guy, does never, you know, betrays Moss. And yet, I will say that passage does a lovely job of sort of explaining why this is a real problem in this book. It's as close as the book comes to convincing me the level of threat that people feel from the idea of winking out. I, I We could do the whole other podcast about my <laughs> issues with, I guess, maybe my lack of concern with that. If someone came to me and said, when I disappear, your existence will blink out. Yeah. I, and I also, by the way, like, if, if, let me put it this way. And here, it's a final plot reveal, but, like, it it matters. In some ways, the key plot twist in this book is Moss realizing that she herself is in an IFT. And that that it has to be, like, reversed for everything to, to end. And the very epilogue of the book demonstrates that on the one hand, her memory goes away, but she doesn't wink away. She actually, it, it, it's the only book I've ever seen where like the happy ending is she's going to grow up and be a teen mom. But like, it's a fascinating. Dan. Okay. So actually, I'm glad you brought okay. that up because that is my least favorite part yep. of the book. Yep. <laughs> it's a real fail on the whole strong, independent woman thing. I am going to not talk about okay. it. 
that is that is that is how we will we will not end on that note. We will end on those beautiful passages that we yes. read. Highly recommend the book. We have a few more weeks of Cold Sci-Fi Winter. We are going to be doing Alien versus Predator and then Groundhog yes. Day. Groundhog Day. Groundhog, Groundhog Day. Day. We're going to be doing Groundhog Day, which means we might be doing more Cold Sci-Fi Winter, <laughs> I guess. But then we're going to go back to Snowpiercer. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be like, what? What's and going then, on? And then I think we don't know exactly what we're going to do. No, gonna we're going to have to plot some Dan, stuff Dan, have out. we decided what we're going to do? We've talked about a few things yeah. we need to do, but uh, we, we will have to go back to the, the, you know, the chart with all of the different arrows that explains what's going on. Yes. Yeah. If you have enjoyed this, uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash base the nation, or you can just rate and review us or tell your friends and neighbors. We love doing this show. We are glad you are here for us. And until next time, keep this channel open for more.